Thanks, ladies. That's very lovely. This morning, just make a couple announcements as we begin, most of which you can find in your uh, bulletin insert here and uh, keep up with what's going on. I don't think they're going to have the children's Zoom uh, tonight, uh, but we will be starting Sunday school hour soon, uh, the first weekend of June, so keep that in mind. Uh, The rest you can find here about the various Bible studies that are available, and of course Wednesday night we're doing it online. And if you don't get the email to that, let me know, and I'll be glad to uh, get you a link for that. You can find my email in our bulletin. It's it's wayne at grbchurch.org. Let me mention just uh, practical things today. If you're um, just new with us, again, the restrooms and and so forth are downstairs, and there is uh, some facilities available for uh, uh, with televisions to keep up with what's going on here in case you need to go down with your children. And I do think we're having uh, something available uh, during the sermon time. Is that correct? Uh, for the children, if for those three to six. And there is also a full nursery if, if it's uh, needed. So all of that's downstairs. And just make note of that. Um, we don't, coll- right now, we're not collecting an offering pass in a plate. There is a box in the front and uh, for giving there. But we will take time, if you'll notice, in, in the uh, worship folder uh, for an offertory after the scripture reading. And part of that is just to stop and think, to pray and ask for God's blessing. I always like that as a time to reflect on uh, God, his goodness, his gifts to us, and pray for the church as well, and that's a great time to do that. If you notice also today we have, um, we're going to sing Psalm 51, part of it, in just a bit. It'll also be read as scripture later on. If you remember, that's the one of the Psalms of David's confession, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. It is a confession of his sin. Note this, that um, if we confess our sins, he God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an incredible truth to think on even this day as we gather together as God's people to worship him. I want to give you a moment for private confession of sin. You don't go to a priest here on earth to confess your sin. You go directly to God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he will indeed hear everyone. So let's prepare our hearts to worship. I'm going to give you a moment now privately to prepare your heart. Then I'll pray for us corporately. And then indeed we'll sing this out in just a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. You privately first. And then I'll pray for us corporately. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we have gathered here together to worship your holy name. We can call you Father through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose forgiveness of our sin has been applied by the Holy Spirit. We have been regenerate and have a new mind, the mind of Christ, a 
a mind in which indeed is connected to you. I pray, Father, that indeed Christ would be first and foremost in our lives. For those of us who constantly fail to meet up to the obligations and the expectations that we have on a daily basis, may we be comforted in the fact that Jesus Christ has atoned for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And it is in his great name we praise you. And we're thankful that every confession of sin is forgiven by you. And so we're thankful for that, and we praise your holy name. I pray for each one of us that we may hear, indeed, from you the way that you would speak to your church today. I pray that we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit, truly enabled to see and savor great truths. May Christ be glorious in our mind, such that our minds would indeed be set on those things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. May we remember and reflect on the fact that Christ has died and our life is hidden in him and in Christ who has risen from the grave we indeed can put our minds on things that are above. I pray that you'd bless us and keep us. Pray for a blessed day today in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's take our inserts and stand as we examine here Psalm 51. And our insert focuses on verses 9 through 19. And a little background on, on this psalm. It's a penitent psalm, which is a repentant psalm. And penitence is defined as an action of feeling or showing sorrow and regret for having done wrong. And you can certainly see that in this hymn uh, as this is dealing with the time period following David's sin uh, with Bathsheba. And in these verses, he is confessing his sin. He's pleading for forgiveness and spiritual renewal. And he's also promising praise. Uh, David's prayer is a model for us as believers, seeking forgiveness and restoration through God's mercy in Christ. We can also see that David acknowledges two things. He has a bad record before God, and secondly, his heart has been corrupted by sin, and he is certainly sorrowful. sorrowful. By application, only God can provide a fundamental change of heart through the work of the Spirit of God. So as we sing this psalm, let's focus on the words uh, as we, like David, cry out to God for a heart that is open to God's word and a conscience that is tender, full of love for our Savior and vehement hatred for our sin. As you see in verse uh, 17, no matter what we do, God will not despise our broken and contrite heart towards our sin. So let's uh, let the girls play through it once and then we'll sing all five verses, the three with the meters and then the two at the bottom. Go ahead, ladies.
as well in that uh, psalm. Psalm, hymns, and spiritual songs is not often we get to sing the psalms. They're written in Hebrew, and so you have to change them up a little bit and uh, did an excellent job. That's a great thing. Today, I want to uh, recognize that indeed it is Mother's Day, and I hope that you have a great day with all the traditions of your family and your and the culture in which we live, and I hope you uh, enjoy all of that today and um, want to say a special blessing, of course, on those mothers. Within the church, however, we do something just a bit different uh, here, and that is we want to go beyond just motherhood in the biological sense. We want to recognize women in particular and femininity. And in particular, if you'll notice on the inside cover of your worship folder, I wrote here, godly femininity. It is something that is key to motherhood and certainly important within the church and something that um, I'm finding more and more these days it needs to be uh, reminded and taught, certainly within the church. If you were to define it, and I got this definition here, if you notice in your uh, in the in the bulletin here, it's in capital letters. This is from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. You can search on that. You can find a tome of about 500 pages that free PDF you can get that goes through this in great detail with scriptural proofs and so forth. They did a great job in defining biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And today, I fear more than anything, a biblical womanhood is being lost to the insane people in our society. They're insane because they're not centered on truth, and that would be God. And so they drift apart doing things that are quite self-destructive. In the beginning, God created male and female for a purpose. And they are different. We recognize some, anybody with a degree of sanity recognizes that. They are certainly to be complementary, but they're not to do the same things. And there is a uniqueness in womanhood. I said femininity here, godly femininity. Specifically, if you were to find it, I think this definition does a good job. The heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm receive and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways that are appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. I think that uh, is a great way to define it and describe it. Um, godly women in particular within the church have made a great mark. I know in my own life personally, I happen to be, some of you who don't know this, I happen to be estranged from my mother. I think I've seen her once since I was 12 years old. And so what filled that gap in my life is all the godly women within the church. And I can think back dearly so much so if I spend any time on it, I'll begin to weep to think about the love, the care, the nurture, the affirmation that I got, just the pats on the back, just the sweet, kindly encouragement, the little gifts that were given and so forth through the years. 
uh, it, it really helped me to make up that indeed that I was uh, missing. Women have a di distinct role within uh, the church, not only the mothers that care immediately for their children, but also for the others to provide some guidance. Notice the text that I selected here today from Timothy. Timothy was Paul's protege, and he points back in 2 Timothy 1.5 about his sincere faith that he has. And where was that grounded in? It was grounded in the seeds that were sown by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, and now dwells in him. It had blossomed. And in addition, towards the, in, um, towards the latter part of that same book, he tells Timothy, young Timothy, as he's going to carry on the work of the ministry of Paul, but as you, he says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing that from whom you learned it, it was from Lois and Eunice, and how from a childhood, you, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's what they taught them. And let me tell you, that should be the core curriculum of your home the core curriculum of the church. It is indeed that holy writing, the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Because all scripture, every bit of it, is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God is good and gracious to give us godly women within this church. And I want to recognize you, and I'm going to pull this down to age 16 and up. If you're, age, if you're female, 16 and up, if you'll go ahead and stand, I want to pray for you. And we have a special recognition, even if you're not a member of the church, you can stand 16 and up. I have a special gift for you just to remember this day. And I want to pray for you in particular. You are key to the godliness within the church and in our culture, certainly in the country and beyond. And the boys, if you'll come on, Nelson boys have uh, uh, a little uh, commemoration for you for this day and for you to think about what God has called you to do to um, display a, uh, a mature femininity. And we're going to continue, I want you to know, praying for you that uh, your unique way in which God has made you will be something that is um, part of this church and on display in, uh, on a, in a regular basis and that the, the beauty of how God has made you will overflow into the lives of others. And young men, did y'all get up here in the front? Are we done? Come on up here. And if you, if you haven't um, received your bookmark, go ahead and wave or carry on. We'll get that to you in just a moment. One other scripture here, too, when I talk about this again, this is one of the reasons we expand beyond just the, the biological motherhood. And again, that, honor that for, for sure. But within the church, here, if you'll notice in Matthew 12, some people came to Jesus and he said, and they said, hey, your mother and your uh, siblings are outside. And Christ's response, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? 
and stretching out his hands toward his disciples and said, here are my mothers and brothers, because whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Let us pray. I'm going to say a special prayer of dedication for you. I also want you to be assured I pray for you on a regular basis. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for these godly ladies that you have granted to this particular fellowship. I pray for each one that you have granted them great strength. May they be uh, bold in the way that you have made them. May they uh, exude godliness in their lives. I pray through their character and their conduct, Father, that you will indeed use that to help sow the seeds of faith in the little ones, that indeed they might grow up and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I pray for the culture that is constantly contradicting who, who you are and what you have created. I pray that the beauty of femininity would be on display not only here, but beyond this in our culture. I pray that our, our culture's attack on women, even in this day, I pray that it would collapse. Collapse under the weight of the insanity in which it exists. I pray, Father, that uh, at least within our community you will raise up women who indeed will be committed to Christ in their life, will communicate all those beautiful attributes in the way that you have created them. I pray that they will find ways within the body of Christ to minister in the unique ways that you have gifted and called them. I pray that you will protect them from the evil one. May they not listen to the lies of Satan, the world, the flesh, the devil. I pray, Father, that you will strengthen them and encourage them. May we come alongside and be supportive as well. I'm thankful for the beauty of the ladies here in their hearts. And I pray that they will shine ever brighter to the glory of Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Let's all stand together and take our hymn books and turn to number 614. In my heart there rings a melody singing psalm, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Colossians 3.16. 614. I have a song that Jesus gave me.
precious to us. He is our Lord and our Savior, dying and setting us free. 561, why do I sing about Jesus? morning. We'll be reading from Psalm 51 today. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 474. Now, Pastor Wayne did send out an, an email with John MacArthur's outline, so I thought I'd read to you John MacArthur's comments uh, as my main introduction to the psalm. MacArthur says of this, this is the classic passage in the Old Testament on man's repentance and God's forgiveness of sin, along with Psalm 32, was written by David after his affair with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, her husband, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It's one of seven poems called Penitential Psalms, 632, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. To David's credit, he recognized fully how horrendous his sin was against God, blamed no one but himself, and beg for divine forgiveness. And then again, the five parts that MacArthur divides the psalm into, our first plea for forgiveness, verses one and two, proffer of confession, verses three to six, prayer for moral cleanness, seven to 12, promise of renewed service, 13 to 17, and prayer for national restoration, 18 and 19. Uh, Spurgeon, in his commentary, The Treasury of David, 
not only has his own comments, but includes a good number of comments from other commentators. And in particular, I'd like to read a, a brief comment that he quotes from William Plumer, who was a 19th century American Southern Presbyterian commentator. His commentary on the Psalms has been republished by Banner of Truth. Plumer said, this Psalm is often and fitly called the sinner's guide. In some of its versions, it often helps the returning sinner. Athanasius, the early church father, recommends to some Christians to whom he was writing to repeat it when they awake at night. All evangelical churches are familiar with it. Luther says, there's no other Psalm which is oftener sung or prayed in the church. And then Plumer also comments, this is the first Psalm in which we have the word spirit used in application to the Holy Ghost. Now let us hear the word of the Lord. The choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Precious Jesus, we remember our faults this day. So grant us from now on to live wholly to you, gracious Lord, to keep you always in view, cleaving to you. Help us always to remember you and your love more than anything else. You are dearest Redeemer. We pray for grace to set you always before us, to record in our hearts your mercies, and to set you in our hearts, to follow you wherever you go, and to watch the steps of Jesus to pursue you in all your paths, at your table, at your ordinances, in your words, in your house of prayer, 
in your providence, in your promises. Everywhere and in all things where Jesus is, we pray that there may our souls be. Though we have no way to pay you back for this bounty, Lord, still in your grace, may we pursue you to bless you and to live out the truth that all we are and all we have is yours. Grant us in this sweet sense to know you, precious Jesus, and to enjoy you in everything, for riches and honor come from you. Yes, Lord, the work is yours, salvation is yours, glory is yours, everything is yours. What remains for us is to be forever giving you the praise that is due your most holy name, content to be nothing, nothing, even less than nothing, that the power of Jesus may rest on us. Because when we are most weak in ourselves, then we are most strong in you, Lord, and in your power. Mercifully, look upon the whole Christian world, particularly those pastors and churches facing persecution. May all that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Let them rejoice as Christians in Christ their Savior, and let your grace teach them to deny all ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Grant us your grace. Draw near to us and meet with us and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Malachi 3.10 says, I will open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you. So I'll stand and turn to number 95 and we'll sing, Come Thou Fount with Every Blessing. 
Let's turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and we're continuing, second part, but we left off last week. Really, all of chapter 17, I've called the prayer of Jesus. And this beginning part is his prayer for his glory. This is a prayer that Jesus actually prayed. Probably not all of it, but enough of it. And here we get a glimpse into his prayer. As I mentioned last week, Jesus would often get away to pray. Now you can imagine how busy Jesus might have been, particularly as his ministry progressed and people became aware of him. Everybody came out. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to see him. They wanted to witness. He would often send them away, try to get away, get in a boat even to cross a lake to avoid these huge throngs of people. In addition to that, Jesus was surrounded by an inner circle of 12. And I can imagine, given their circumstances, which is understandable, that they would press on him quite a bit, asking questions all the time, seeking answers all the time, a dozen of them surrounded. And so it is no strange thing that Jesus then would often get away and pray. Luke records that he would get away in desolate places. And perhaps you remember some of that. He would even take his disciples with him, of course, because they wanted to be around him. And then he said, well, you wait right here and I'll go off to pray. That was a common thing that he did. It isn't that this desolate place was all that great to pray. It was just that he was attempting to get alone to pray for the Father. And as a aside here, I might mention that you may have to be creative in your own life to do the same kinds of things. And since this is Mother's Day, I'll, I'll mention an illustration of a godly woman who was very creative. I, I don't know a greater responsibility and task filled with really 24-7 activity pretty much is, is being a mother. It's a very difficult task. I always enjoyed leaving the house and getting away <laughs> just to go to work. I didn't care if it was splitting rocks or whatever. But this lady, Susanna, by the way, she didn't live a pampered life with few responsibilities. She had quite a bit. Life was difficult for Susanna. Her husband was a preacher, but not a very successful one. In fact, he was very irresponsible, particularly with their finances, and constantly got them in debt, you know, one time so bad that he was put in debtor's prison that they had at that time, which obviously didn't help. It made things even worse. He had a bad temperament, particularly towards his wife, Often he, things weren't going just right, he would take off and abandon them all. Susanna had a difficult life, just some highlights of it. She had 19 children. Nine of them died in infancy. One of them was crippled from birth. Another couldn't talk till he was sick. And another one had a child out of wedlock. 
She argued consequently with her husband about various disagreements, particularly with the children having no money and food much of the time. Her home, by the way, with all their possessions in it, didn't have insurance back then, but it burned down twice. They lost everything and had to rebuild. It was quite confusing and chaotic, as you could imagine, but she was committed to God and prayer, and prayer in particular for those of her responsibility, her children. So she creatively came up a way. She couldn't just go off to a desolate place. Instead, it is said of Susanna that what she would do was take her apron and put it over her head and instructed her children, when you see Mama with the apron over her head, she's not to be disturbed because she's trying to get alone with God and pray. Well, you may not know that much about Susanna, but you do know the answers to some of her prayers and her sons, John and Charles Wesley. You do not have time not to get alone and pray to God. And whatever confusion and chaos and circumstances that might surround you, at least this is a, a good model for us in Christ in finding time on a regular basis to get alone to pray. This prayer that we have is a beautiful prayer for us to read and consider, a prayer that Christ prayed and prayed right before he would go to the cross. I outlined this prayer in John chapter 17 for you. The first part of it, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is essentially praying for himself. In 6 through 19, he's praying for his disciples. And then in 20 through 26, those disciples that would follow. This morning, we're going to look at this first part again, what I've called the glory of Jesus. We'll begin in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, <coughs> and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let us pray. Father, I do pray as we have looked at this prayer of Jesus, I pray for your people that we would be enlightened to see the glory of Christ today. I pray in his name. Amen. Notice here in our text, the way it begins, our <coughs> way of review, it says, now is the hour. The hour has come and do this, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. We talk about glory, if you remember, that is simply another word similar to it would be beauty. This is the beauty in particular of the divine per perfections of God. God is perfect in all that he does. And so here, 
Christ is praying that the Father would glorify the Son. And the purpose in doing so was that he would reflect that glory back indeed to the Father. I've broken this text up, verses 1 through <coughs> 5, in four sections. We did half of it last week. The first is the atonement, the second, the authority of Christ, the third, his accomplishment, and finally, his ascension. The atonement, I said, and notice in verse 1, he said, the hour has come. What is the hour? That is the hour of his death, his sacrifice, the atonement for sin. And the second aspect is found in verse 2, where he says, indeed, the Son has all authority. Remember in the giving of the Great Commission, we call it, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, it begins that section with Jesus Christ saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Christ has authority. He has authority over all things. It may not seem like it at the moment, but I can assure you this, Jesus Christ is Lord. And our call to the masses is simply have them recognize and confess it in repentance rather than in judgment. Jesus Christ does have all authority. This morning, we're going to then look at what he has accomplished, beginning in verse 4, and then hopefully get to the ascension in verse 5 as this ends. Let's look at this first part, verse 4, and notice this in particular. Pay attention to the words. Here, Christ Jesus is in his prayer praying, I glorified you on earth. And how did Jesus glorify? I accomplished the work. And note this phrase, what work? The work that you gave me to do. Underline that. It's the work the Father gives to Christ. We would call this, in our theological explanation, as the very decree of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains the decree this way in just easy terminology. It is God's eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. We can demonstrate that biblically. God has foreordained or decreed whatever is, will come to pass. Whatever occurs in time is decreed by God, and the purpose for it is for his glory. That is, for his glory to be displayed. Hence, Christ is praying that very thing. Glorify me that I might glorify you. And here he says, I have glorified you in doing what? Accomplishing the work that you have given me to do or that you have decreed to do. The theologian W.T. Shedd in his Systematic Theology explains this in greater detail. The divine decree, he would say, is formed in eternity, but executed in time. And that's key to understand. It is formed before the world began, but it must take place in time. 
This is what Jesus is referring to when he says right here in this text, I've accomplished, executed, if you will, in time, that is why I was on earth, all that you have given me to do or decreed to be done. Shed goes on. There are sequences in the execution, but not the formation of God's eternal purpose. In his own mind and consciousness, God simultaneously, because eternally decrees all that occurs in space and time, but the effects and results corresponding to the decree occur successively, not simultaneously. In other words, God sees it all happening because he says, let there be, and there will be, but in time it does take time to unfold. Shed continues, there were 33 years between the actual incarnation and the actual crucifixion, right? Time. <clears throat> but not between the decree that the Logos should be incarnate and the decree that he should be crucified. In God's decree, it is done. In the divine decree, Christ was simultaneously because eternally incarnate and crucified. Note Revelation 14.8. John says this, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Right? He's going to be slain on Friday, the next day after this prayer in time. But in accordance with the decree, it is accomplished, slain then at the, uh, before the foundation of the world. Hence, Shed continues, divine decrees in reference to God are one single act only. The single number employed in scripture when the divine mind and nature are considered. This is why Paul could say, by the way, in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. This is God's purpose. He is purpose for it. What things? All things. Everything. Whatsoever comes to pass. Even the hard things. Even difficult things. And yes, even Jesus Christ suffering dying, being humiliated, spit on, rejected. It is all within the decree of God to accomplish his purpose. And here it is the purpose of the redemption, the saving of his people from their sin. All of this is according to his eternal purposes, which he has determined in Christ the Lord. Ephesians 3.11. At this point in our text, in John 17, 4, Jesus is making a declaration that all that God has decreed, foreordained, determined to be done in relationship to the atonement for sin has been fulfilled. God determined it to be so before the world began. And now, in time, all that would, which has been decreed or determined is actually being accomplished. 
Now, don't be confused by this statement. There are still yet some things to occur in time, right? The cross is just hours away at this point. But everything is progressing according to God's divine time clock. Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sin. In John chapter 19, finalizes this hour and this moment that is now as a bell being tolled. Jesus knows that all is finished, John 19, 28, and to fulfill Scripture, that is, how could Scripture be fulfilled? Because God determined that all of it would happen, revealed some of it to the prophets. The prophets then recorded it in Holy Scripture, and here you have it in time, acting out where Jesus says, to fulfill Holy Scripture, I thirst. And taking a jar of sour wine, he stood there, and they put a sponge full of sour wine and hyssop branch and held it to his mouth, just as the prophets foretold. How could the prophets foretell that? Because God determines all that would take place in time. It is the very decree of God. And when Jesus Christ receives that, he says, it is finished. He bows his head and gives up his spirit. This is mission accomplished. Salvation, then, beloved, is a matter of divine accomplishment, fulfilling all the work that God had planned before the foundation of the world. It is now completed in time. It is indeed finished. This is God's work. He declares it as such. And what is the purpose of the declaration? That indeed he would be glorified. And hence the connection here when Jesus says, I've accomplished, glorify the Son, as I glorify you. Here, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I, I like this section because it is so compact. It contains this great truth packed up together to where it is readily accessible in just a few verses, and we'll look at a, a few it reflects the ideology that I'm trying to connect here to Christ saying, I've accomplished what you've given to me to do, this decree, this single act in the mind of God, this monergistic act of salvation. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, then God is to be blessed. God is to be praised. God is to be glorified. You can use Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he did what? Chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, there is a, even you sitting here, there is a time in which you will confess Jesus Christ as Lord, right? This is the time element aspect. But in God's mind, it's done. It is finished. It is completed. Oh, yes, will there have to be something to play out in time? Yes, in your mind, you'll have to recognize that I'm a sinner. And I need to repent. And I need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But from God's perspective, this is all done. 
And, and I hope if you get a glimpse of this by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that your response would be great blessing and praise to him, glory to him. And never cease but praise him for it, for coming up with this to begin with, chosen before the foundation of the world. I know some folks have a rough time with that idea. And they, and, they, and they spurn it and almost want to think of it in terms of, in, in, a, in a hateful way or anyone saying that kind of thing. The, the point of all of this is to give glory and praise to God and God alone. Yes, you must choose Christ. Yes, you must believe and call people to repent and believe. And when they truly do, then they recognize the reason they did that very thing is that from the foundation of the world, God said, I'll have that one. Demonstrates also, as he'll unpack, we'll not spend the time to get there, but at the very end of this section, it talks about being then sealed by the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. Of course, because in God's mind, it's, it's complete, it's finished. And this is why no one who is truly confesses Jesus Christ as Lord will ever deny the faith. They can't, right? Because God has chosen them. It does unfold in time. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, verse 4, that we should be holy, blameless before him in love. And, and I say these three, by the way, are three aspects of the, the result of his choosing, if you will. The holy just means to be set apart, sanctified, if you will. Blameless, that is made perfectly right before him. We know how. It is in Jesus Christ and only in him, right? That has how verse what, three, that is how he blessed us. It is not in our own selves, but in Christ that we have been made holy, that we have been made blameless. And then, and some folks struggle where to put this in love. I say it goes with this first part, and that is, that is the state of those that are in Christ. They are loved. They are beloved, if you will. That is the state of a believer, because that's the state of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is holy. Jesus Christ is blameless. Jesus Christ is beloved by the Father. And if you're in him, those aspects apply to you. That's what he's saying. He predestined then for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. It is only through Christ that you'll be holy, blameless, and love. It is through Christ he has predestined. That means he had planned this ahead of time. And for what purposes? The purposes of his own will. And what, it, what are the purposes of God? It says it right there in the text of verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he had blessed us in the beloved. And that's how... We should respond to the praise of his glorious grace. 
It is in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In that section here in chapter 1, it repeats this phrase, to the praise of the glory of his grace, the praise of his glorious grace, the praise of his glorious grace. Salvation then is a demonstration of the glorious grace of God. It is his blessing, a blessing that has been decreed by the Father and in time, chapter 17, is accomplished by the Son. Later on in the text, we'll learn that this is then indeed applied by the Holy Spirit. It is a triune work of God functioning each member in a different aspect, functionally all accomplishing the one thing, and that is the glory of God. God is glorified in the accomplishment of Jesus Christ in all that God has determined to do, All that he has determined to do is now being fulfilled in time and therefore gives him glory. All that is being accomplished has been promised, as I mentioned, by the prophets in time. And now it's being realized and thus the son is glorifying the father. In what ways? I can think of just a few off the top of my head. God is glorified in the fact that he is demonstrated to be true. All that he has said is being accomplished by Jesus Christ. God is glorified in the sense that he is trustworthy, fulfilling his promises and his covenant, all that has gone before. And God is absolutely just. The sin will be atoned for. The wages of sin is indeed death, and Christ will accomplish the atonement through taking our sin on his body on the tree. God is indeed just. There won't be just some folks that just get away with it, scot-free. No, every sin will be paid for either by your own eternal payment in judgment or through the judgment on Jesus Christ. But God will be just in all of that. No one will will get away with anything. Plenty of people get away with stuff in this life, but in eternity, no, they will not. God will be praised. God will be praised when I look at this too is the absolute wisdom of, of accomplishing all of this that's done. I couldn't come up with a way like this. In fact, most people can't come up with a way, well, I'd say all, can't come up with a way that's any different and that's why they struggle with this whole concept because they would come up with a better way, a more fair way. Right, yeah. Just throw out an opportunity to people to, to come to Christ and get saved on their own and make good choices. That's the plan of salvation most people would come up with. And if you did that, you know how many people would get saved? Zero. That's what would happen. I remember a story about Jerry Clowers used to talk about giving raccoons a fair sh- chance, sporting chance. They would apparently run a coon up in the tree and be out there with a bunch of dogs and shotguns. And rather than shoot up in the tree once the coon was treed and bag their prey, 
they would shake the limbs and let the coon fall down because he said, well, that coon could whip all them dogs and go free. <laughs> it would never happen. You would never repent and turn to Christ if he didn't change your heart, if he didn't give your blind eyes sight, your deaf ears hearing, your dead heart life. It is the work of his grace to accomplish this, and Christ accomplishes it all in absolute wisdom. And God is faithful, and that is demonstrated there. God is omniscient. He knows all that is going to take place, and he's omnipotent in that he will powerfully accomplish what he has determined to do. In the end, it is glory. I stand in amazement and awe when I'm reminded of these things. Back to our text in verse 4. Jesus says, note here the term of accomplishment. He's glorified all you gave me to do. That is in the decree. And where was it done? And that is, it is done on earth. Jesus volunteers then to take on flesh. The sovereign takes on the form of a servant to accomplish all that the Father has decreed from the beginning. He will primarily accomplish this by fulfilling the work that God has given him to do. Now, just for time's sake, I'm going to just read out for you. You don't have to follow along. You can. But just from John, an example. In Christ actually fulfilling out this on earth, John 4.34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent to me and to accomplish his work. In 5.30 of John, I can do... Nothing on my own, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 536, the testimony I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In 638, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The rejection then of Jesus Christ and his work is the rejection of the Father who has commissioned him in that sense to do this work. That's why Jesus would say in 523, whoever doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. Whoever hates me, John 15, 23, hates my father also. There is an inseparable union then within the Godhead. You cannot have one without the other. In our text, it's, it's Jesus who is sent by the Father, empowered by the Spirit to accomplish his work. And what is this work that he did on earth that he is recognizing that he accomplished? It is all of the glory of God in Christ Jesus displayed on earth. What does that look like? Well, how about the humility in his incarnation, born an infant 
in Bethlehem, that aspect demonstrated in great humility. His patience as he increases in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man as a child, waiting 33 years, or 30 years at least, before that's on display. On earth, he demonstrates through the glory of God on earth in accomplishing great teaching. In our text, we've already gone through where even his opponents said, no one has ever taught like him. He goes to the temple and explains a text of scripture, and they can't understand it. Where did this one get that kind of insight? If you read the text of scripture and the comments that Jesus makes about all these things that, to which he is asked, they are profound in his statements. On earth, he demonstrated many signs and miracles that were unprecedented and never matched by anyone to the degree that Jesus Christ did it. Oh, his followers did do some, but not to the degree that Jesus Christ did. He, you understand when Jesus on earth, he was healing everyone. No wonder throngs of people came to him. It, was, it wasn't much for him just to take a few scraps of food and feed thousands and thousands of people. No one's ever done anything like Christ. No wonder even one of his op- opponents, Nicodemus, would come to him and said, no one can do these kinds of things unless God is with him. This is what Christ did. He lived a, on earth a sinless life. And I know we know that intellectually. We know about that theologically. But can you imagine someone actually living all the way to adulthood with no sin, no bad attitude, right? No no anger that isn't justified, only righteous anger. No corrupt word coming out of the mouth. No actions, and this is foreign in many respects. And so much so that he could even ask his opponents, does anyone have a charge against me? You know what they charged him against, finally was able to do? Well, he said he's God. (laughs) Let's see, you did things that no one else could do, you said things that no one else would say. Um, Yeah, I think he demonstrated indeed that that was true, and they were wrong. He demonstrated a patient and controlled and yet wrath, a righteous wrath in cleansing the temple at least two times that we know of, may have done it more. He rebuked the Sadducees and the the Pharisees in, in ways that were right to challenge them. He demonstrated on earth his great submission like a lamb led before a slaughter. He could have called A myriad of angels. Angels, by the way, are not an effeminate character that's portrayed on television. An angel, you can think of them as a great, fierce warrior, a destroyer. And I could imagine in the heavenlies, if you will, angelic beings, by the way, who... We're we're told in Scripture, Scripture's not about angels, but they are said to peer in on 
the gospel even now because this is so glorious for them to hear about that they want to indeed hear about it. But I could imagine as Jesus now, chapter 17, he's going to go to the cross and at any moment these angels, great warriors, are willing to come and put an end to all flesh. They will in the final judgment. There is an assistance with the word of Christ. But at this point in time, Jesus Christ in great submission. Submission to the Father's will to do this very thing in verse 4, accomplish all that he has given him to do. And Christ is glorious. Well, our final point here is in verse 5. Jesus Christ accomplishes all the Father does. He's glorified. It glorifies the Father. But now, notice verse 5 in chapter 17. He's calling for the Father then to glorify him. Glorify me in your own presence. Okay? This is talking about the ascension when he will be reunited in that sense with the Father. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's looking back to eternity past and the state in which Christ had in his glorious state. He prays to the Father to restore this. And as I look at it, and I don't know about you, but I would suggest that this aspect this ascension of Christ to the Father, the restoration of his glory, is perhaps one of the more overlooked aspects of this hour. And maybe it shouldn't be. And so I want to take some time and draw your attention to this and why this would be important for you to think about as you worship Christ this day. If you remember, Jesus Christ volunteered to descend from above and come to earth below, if you will. His mission is the atonement, saving his people from their sin. Once that is accomplished, then we have what's going on here. He's going to be restored to his prior glory. Now, when Jesus took on human flesh, he did so... And in condescending in this way, he looked like an ordinary person. Listen to the prophet Isaiah explain. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. These Renaissance pictures of Jesus with a halo around his head miss the mark. In fact, I'm kind of glad, and I understand in God's wisdom why he would do it, not to um, do, uh, have this incarnation at a time in which um, there weren't any photographs, because if there were, there'd be all kinds of shrines and stuff that people would build. Oh, all kinds of idolatry. And yeah, I think he said something about not making an image of him. So if you have a picture on Jesus on your wall, 
it's not him. <clears throat> um, I personally don't care for him. I'm not going to make a big fuss about that, but nevertheless, as long as you recognize that's not who he is. He didn't have a halo over his head. There was no way, if you were to look at him, taking on human flesh, that externally, in that regard, that he would look like the Son of uh, God. He took on a true human form, and from a human perspective, he would look very normal. I think I already <coughs> highlighted, mentioned, this Luke's account of his early childhood. You can find it in Luke 2.52. I'll just read it for you. Speaking of Jesus... After his birth, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's, just talk, that's a phraseology just to talk about how kids normally grow up. You know, they, they start out and they, they develop from their human perspective, even their human spirit, their personality and all of that. Jesus would have looked very normal. And in fact, when you read the text you find of Scripture, you find that he, he does. He gets tired. He sleeps. He's hungry. He's thirsty. Jesus Christ, in his condensation to earth, actually takes on a real human nature. God walking in your shoes. You know, I, I've heard that phrase before. Well, you don't know what it's like to walk in my shoes. Can I tell you someone who does? Yeah. And don't take my word for it. How about the preacher from Hebrews chapter 4? We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ went to the full extreme and never broke. That's the difference. You and I go, oh, maybe 10%. Maybe we get stronger. We go 20, 30, 40, whatever it is. At some point, we break. He never broke. So he gets 100% of the temptation in the wilderness for the devil, and he never breaks. Guess what? You're somewhere on that continuum. None of you are at 100%. Right? He knows. He, he is able to sympathize in every respect with our weakness. He never breaks. His actions, however, such as resisting the devil, demonstrated his divinity. His actions in the miracles that he did and the message that he gave demonstrate his divinity. He was fully divine, and he was fully, fully human. The Gnostics, and they're kind of developing at this point in time, that, uh, that ideology rose up where they denied the sense of the humanity in the sense of equality with man. On the contrary, later on, the Arians would rise up and deny Jesus' divinity in the sense of his full equality with God. Both are in great error. The, the simple equation is this. We call it the hypostatic union of Christ. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. You say, well, I have a hard time understanding that. Well, that's fine. You understand what it means to be fully man. 
You don't understand what it means to be fully gone, but Scripture indeed declares that, and because of that, it is unique. We do believe it. We do trust it. The early church had to hammer this out because of the errors along the way, particularly denying aspects of his divinity or denying aspects of his humanity. We can't do either. And cultist groups, by the way, have great trouble with this because if you read the scriptures, and it does say, how could Jesus be tired, be hungry, and be thirsty? And yet be God who holds the world and keeps all things together by the word of his power. Both are true. Here's how, I'll just read a phrase of it from Chalcedon. Speaking of Jesus Christ in the Chalcedon Creed in 451, they put it this way. The Lord, concerning the Lord, he is to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us. Amen. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. But what's going on with this glory, then, is that the external aspect of Jesus Christ is what is being hidden. I'd argue this is what he gives up in Philippians 2 when it says he takes on flesh. He gives up the external glory which he possessed from the beginning. Uh, I don't like the phraseology of Jesus giving up the independent use of his will. Some people phrase it that way because he's doing the will of the Father. I think they're always in I don't like to phrase it that way. I understand why people say that, but the, the bottom line, they're, they're always in conjunction. He's always doing the Father's will. They're always in that realm of agreement with one another. But I think what Christ gives up in the incarnation by taking on human flesh is we can't see the external glory of God. We can see the glory of God in his life, as I've already mentioned, in what he accomplished, right? All of those aspects in his message, in his miracles, in his mannerisms, and these kinds of things. But there is another aspect of Jesus Christ that you've never seen. Scripture has disclosed that to us, and it is something that is waiting and which Christ is talking about. Um, if you want to turn there, you can. I want you to. We're gonna. I'm gonna have to rush through this a bit to get there. To, we'll finish off in Revelation in just a minute. But you've heard about the transfiguration of Christ, I'm sure. Matthew records it in his gospel in chapter 17. Here they want to see the glory of Christ in particular because remember he looked like anybody else. And in Matthew 17. It describes an event in which Jesus was transfigured before them. And to describe it, it says, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
That's a external, a glimpse of the external manifestation of his glory. It's described as light. Between the Old Testament completion of the canon and the New Testament, that intertestamental period, a bunch of Jewish rabbis wrote about God in that terminology, and they chose the word Shekinah. Perhaps you've heard of it, the Shekinah, glory of God. You won't find it in the Hebrew scriptures, but it is part of their commentary to discuss the way God was seen in the Old Testament. And you remember some of those stories, don't you? How God led Israel by day and night as a cloud and a pillar of fire. How that Moses accounts, Moses' recounting of God and meeting him in a burning bush sees him as what? Light in that burning bush. Solomon's temple is filled with the glory of God. And, and how does it come? It comes as fire, light coming down. Zechariah records a future time in which um, the dwelling of God in Jerusalem is as of fire. James Boyce comments on this. He says, in Jewish thought, any outward manifestation of God's presence, and that's key, is believed to be involved in a display of light, radiance, or glory so brilliant that man could not approach it. The idea involved in this phrase is found in Psalm chapter 4 and 44, the light of his face. In 104 of Psalms, it says, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. Jesus says in our text, in verse 5, the glory I had with you before the world existed, glorify me with that glory. What he's, I say what he's talking about here ultimately is his external manifestation of glory. If we were to try to describe it, it would be described as light. And here's where I want to finish up in chapter, let's go to book of Revelation. We'll just hit a couple spots here to show you. Chapter 1 and verse 16. Jesus Christ, I say, lays aside this external display of his glory, and now he's going to, in his ascension, have that be returned to him. Notice how John sees the vision of the Lord in verse 16 of chapter 1. In his right hand, he holds seven stars. From his mouth comes two-edged sword. That is judgment. And his face is what? His face is like the sun shining in full strength. Go out and look at the sun. It'll blind you. Okay? That is a shadow of this reality. And John has to explain Christ in his ascended state. That's where he's looking at him now. That's what Christ would look like externally, so brilliant, so beautiful. It's described as a sun shining in full strength. And no wonder in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand on me and said, fear not. If you... This is why some of these foolish visions of Christ are so, they're irritating. 
if you actually see Christ, you're going to fall over dead. And you'll have to be revived by him. He is that glorious, that brilliant, in the way we would have to explain him as the sun shining in full strength. This glory that Christ possesses externally is now in full display in the presence of the Father. Now you say, well, okay, Christ is great and glorious. What relationship do I have to that? Well, you'll have to go to the end of this book, which Revelation, by the way, is the revealing, the explaining of Jesus Christ. It is about him. What relationship do I have to this glorious light? Well, I'll just highlight a couple points for sake of time. Go to chapter 21. He's talking about the eternal state. In verse 22, he says, well, there's no temple there. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. It is Jesus Christ. It is the glorious presence of Him. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. Why? Because Christ is there in His glorious external radiance of his beauty. Chapter 22, verse 4, and they will see his face. Because you'll be holy, blameless, and in love with God. And in his presence is fullness of light. It irradiates there, and you will be enabled to see this in fullness because the sin, you, there will be no sin. It's described, there's no, there, and, there, and night will be no more. They'll have no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the prayer that Jesus prays for his glory to be restored. It is a glory to which you are called to see. That is to be with him in his presence. That's what the light is a display of. The very presence of God to which he calls his beloved. Christ's prayer will be answered. And there can be joy and praise among his people. Let us pray. Father, we do pray and thankful that you do honor that prayer to glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. I pray that we would be indeed blessed by thinking on these things and looking forward to the fullness of glory of Christ with unveiled faces. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now to think on these things. Take a moment, respond directly to Christ as he has spoken to you.
Beloved, we are God's children now. him as he is and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure amen well I want to sing worthy no what number is worthy what number did you just do you mind indulging? Let's sing about the worthiness of Christ today. Number three. Sorry, instrumentals over here. That you know. Sing it out. Let's stand. said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes and with the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And we had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense that are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on a throne and to the Lamb it be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Gracious Father, we're thankful that you have given us this example of the true glory of Christ and how we will all worship him, how he deserves to be worshipped. Father, we pray that you'd help us to think on these things now as we depart and go our way. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.